0: Welcome to the SciFeed Guest Show, I'm your host Jack, and in each episode I'll be talking to a different scientist about their research and topics that they know best. In this episode, my guest is Dr. Michaela Johnson, who's recently finished a PhD in paleontology focusing on fossil crocs at the University of Edinburgh. Welcome to the show, and let's start off with, first of all, a bit about your background and how you ended up studying paleontology and specifically crocodylomorphs.
1: Okay. Um, So I am, as you say, a vertebrate paleontologist. So I study prehistoric life, specifically things with a backbone, because they're awesome. Um, And I'm from Canada. So I grew up kind of with dinosaurs, you know, with out in Drumheller. And I always went to the museum when I was a kid. And I've always liked dinosaurs ever since I was little. And I kind of never grew out of that. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to study dinosaurs? Um, So when I did my undergraduate at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, uh, I had to take a herpetology course, so studying reptiles and amphibians, and it was an amazing course, and we had one lecture on crocodiles, and I'd always liked crocodiles too, you know, Steve Irwin, he was my hero when I was a kid, and seeing them in zoos and on TV and stuff like that, so we had the one lecture on the crocodiles, and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be neat to combine paleontology with fossil croco- with crocodiles, so fossil crocodiles. And that was the, the end of my soul. I sold my soul to some fossil crocodiles and I do not regret it because they are an incredible group and we're only really just scratching the surface of their, re- of their studies. So that, that's kind of how I got into fossil crocs.
0: Yeah, it's amazing that just the one lecture got you interested enough to want to study it full time.
1: There's this light, light bulb, yeah.
0: <laughs> Before we go into more detail, um, can you first clear up kind of the terminology that you use? So you, I believe, study crocodilomorphs. Does that include alligators and things like that, or is it just crocodiles?
1: Yeah, so they're a type of crocodilomorph. So the I guess the ones today we've got the alligators, plus the caimans. So they're most closely related to one another. Then we've got a different group, which are the crocodiles, and then we've got the third group, which are the gavials, and maybe a fourth group with the false gavial, but. I don't really know about that. That's more kind of DNA-wise. So at least today, we've got three distinct groups of crocodile morphs.
0: Thanks for clearing up the actual terms. Otherwise, it's just far too easy for me to get confused.
1: Yeah, I know. I feel so bad because it's like, oh, what's a crocodile morph? What's a crocodile? I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I ruined your life.
0: <laughs> but... Have they always been called crocodile morphs and crocodiles since they were discovered?
1: Yeah, so... Crocodilomorpha, so, uh, allig- so that's modern crocodiles, alligators, caimans, and the gavial, plus their fossil relatives, all of their fossil relatives. So that's the entire group. That was coined in the 1930s, I believe. Whereas the word crocodile, that's been around for hundreds of years. Cuvier and, and these old French priests from the 1700s, they were using the word crocodile.
0: That long ago, when they were finding fossils, did they actually understand what they'd found? Or did they think it was just more normal crocodiles?
1: So, I I think they did. Um, I think back then there was a a tendency to really kind of uh, not lump everything together, but to split everything up. So, for a tiny, tiny, tiny little piece of a jaw, they would be like, oh yeah, this is a new species. But looking at it now, you're like, okay, it's a one section of the jaw that's maybe 50 centimeters long that has no distinguishing features about it. I don't know how you can call this a new species. So I think there was a real sense uh, for them to, to name species. And that, that was okay because they named a lot of really iconic ones, for, especially for the teleosaur. a lot of iconic ones and a lot of good work done. But there was a tendency to kind of say everything was a new species. And it's like, ooh,
0: yeah. Let's go on to your work. Which when you got in touch, you said, was evolution, anatomy, and sorry, I've forgotten the, the third one. So, maybe
1: like relationships, I saw ecology kind of as well. Yeah.
0: So, I guess starting on evolution and maybe ecology, how do fossil crocodiles that you look at relate to modern ones today?
1: Yeah. So So, in general, the modern crocodiles and alligators that we have today are. Quite different looking than many of the fossil crocodiles that were back in the Cretaceous or back in the Jurassic. Um, We had crocodiles back then that may have walked on two legs. We have crocodiles that swam a bit like whales that may have mimicked whales. Um, And that's kind of the group that I focus on. Uh, We had some crocodiles that ran like horses. We've got crocodiles that were purely uh, leaf eaters, so plant eaters. We've got a whole variety of crocodile forms and morphologies and different ecologies and things so the ones we have today they're very cool but they're they're just a tiny tiny percentage of the diversity of crocodilomorphs so crocodiles and their fossil relatives that we had overall it's a it's a 200 million year old group crocodilomorpha
0: the idea of like Crocodiles walking around on two legs in prehistoric times. Just to really weird. Some image. some
1: people think that's terrifying and I'm like, that is so cool. I would totally pay to see that. Um, so it, it's really quite neat just to see all these different kinds of crocodile morphs, right? That that are so different from what we have today. And the ones we have today are pretty boss, let's be honest. Like they're pretty cool.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They already look kinda like yeah. sea monsters or something. Although that might actually be wrong. Do crocodilomorphs all live in the sea and rivers?
1: So you're, you're right on track. So they, they do spend a lot of their time in the water. That's where they feel most comfortable. That's where they're more kind of agile, quote unquote, if you will. But they do spend some time on land. They do have to come on land to, to lay their eggs and to bask and, you know, just to, to get around if, if they have to move body, you know, if, if they have to, to move from a different section of water to another, they'll they'll walk. I mean, some smaller crocodiles can climb up trees. They don't do it often, but it's really kind of funny to watch them do that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I have to actually Google that or see if there's some sort of video. Crocodile climbing a tree. Yeah, it's funny if
1: there are some interesting pictures.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I can't really get the image out of my head. (laughs) So how do you, in your actual day-to-day work, actually figure out information about fossilized animals from millions of years Mm. ago?
1: So I work on a specific group of Jurassic, uh, we'll call them crocodiles, but they're crocodillimores. So Jurassic crocodiles called Thalatisuchians. So Thalatisuchians are divided into two main groups. Uh, There's the Metrorhynchids, so the whale-like ones that I mentioned before, and then there's the teleosauroids. So they're kind of, they've been regarded as more gavial-like, like like the Indian gavial that we have today. Um and those are the ones that I work on.
0: Right. And is the Gabiol a group of different crocodilomorphs or is it one type of crocodile?
1: So it yeah, so it's a crocodilomorph. Um again, you can give that a Google. It's it's a croc that's uh, specifically in India, very long, skinny snout, kind of almost bug eyes. They get really, really big as well. They're very, very interesting. Unfortunately, they're endangered. Uh, but they're very interesting. uh, Crocodile they're not not a crocodile They're a gabial Um, But those are kind of what the Teliosauroids have always been thought to Mimic, if you will Um, So they've Been known Since the 1700s Um, They were first described in 1758 twice by two different People, but the literature goes As far back as 1722 Is when we have mentions of their fossils So historically they're a very Interesting group the problem is, so their taxonomy, so that's the science of naming, defining, and classifying animals, that is a complete mess. So they've been thrown into different names, you know, multiple times over the years, and then they've been thrown into this one wastebasket named Steniosaurus, um, and then we have Makemosaurus, which is more well-known. But they thought to be more conservative, they thought to almost be kind of all the, the same, You know, okay, the skull is different, but everything else about them is their same. They're feeding the same. They're living in the same habitats, excluding this uh, genus Mekhemosaurus, which has really blunt teeth. So my PhD work was to investigate this and see if this was true. So I looked at the morphology of these animals. So I went to a bunch of different museums, looked at a ton of specimens, over 500, um, and then with all this data, I put it into a phylogeny, so an evolutionary tree of these animals. And with this evolutionary tree, then you can start to look at patterns through time. How was the skull changing? How big were they getting? Where were they living? Were they feeding the same? And I can't really talk very much about their ecology because we've got a paper actually in review right now. But our, our phylogeny, uh, which is is a massive up-to-date thing now. I, I don't know how many characters I looked at for this thing. It's showing some very distinct patterns of their feeding ecology, of their distribution, and of their morphology, and as well as their habitat. These animals, all these species, they're not all the same. They're doing a bunch of, of different things and they're doing it in a very weird way. So that was quite exciting to see. Um, so we're going to be doing a little bit more work on this, you know, this feeding ecology and things like that, uh, a little bit more statistical tests. And that's that's another thing that I'm working on with colleagues right now. But my, my the main part of my Ph.D. was putting this phylogeny, this evolutionary tree, this family tree of teliosaurids together.
0: Did you notice when the teliosaurid family was evolving, were any particular features changing, like any part of their anatomy or behavior that you could detect?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's one subgroup, again, I can't really go too much into it, uh, but there's this one subgroup within the telosaurites that are, that are very linear. They're doing a very linear pattern with their morphology and with their feeding ecology, which is interesting because we can see some really nice, this is the first one, this is the second one, this is the third one. Ooh, very nice and linear. Thank you.
0: So by linear, do you mean they're changing quite slowly and steadily and predictably.
1: Yeah, they're they're not doing anything really weird or really kind of morphologically bizarre if you will. Quite a clear
0: simple change.
1: Exactly. And then this other subgroup, they're all over the place. They're doing whatever the heck they want. And we're not quite sure, and it's kind of unfortunate because that's the group where we don't have a lot of material from. So from for that group, we've got some specimens from the UK and from Europe. We also have some specimens from China, which is very important. Um, and we also have some specimens maybe from, from Africa, but I'm not entirely sure about that. Um, so biogeographically they're very diverse. They're going from the UK all the way over to China and Thailand as well. We've got some stuff from Thailand. That's quite neat. Why are they doing all these weird things? We don't know. We just don't have enough specimens or we, we don't have any, post-cranial material so anything but the skull we're missing all a lot of that we've only got one skull of one species so it's so that's a a bit unfortunate um but that just means that we have to go out and find more of these i mean i would love to do some field work in in china and try and find some tuarshan crocodiles right but that's that's for future me problem
0: yeah does it take a lot of digging in field work to actually find any of these sort of fossils
1: yeah um so for these crocodiles in particular there was a ton of field work um especially in the 1800s because this that was kind of the boom of telosauroid research so many things were getting named so many specimens were being found particularly in the uk and in france and in germany um and it's it's died down I just, I don't know if we're not looking at the, the specific rocks because they're, they're Jurassic in age. I don't know if we're just focusing more on, you know, different aged rocks or if we don't have semi-marine rocks because most of these guys are found in, in those kind of deposits. Maybe we're focusing more on terrestrial stuff or maybe we're just unlucky and we're not finding them. For instance, in Africa, there's fragmentary stuff, right? You know, and there's some teeth and we know that they've gotten down there. For sure, because of the teeth, but the the preservation, maybe they're just not being preserved, it's very, very dry, especially in Tunisia where they found the Mychemosaurus this or um, rex, pardon me, this one of this really, really big ones, the turtle crushers. And the skull is it's just very poorly preserved. And I think that's part of the problem is in a lot of these areas where we really want to find these things, which will help us especially understand their distribution patterns. It's just we're not getting them preserved.
0: Were there quite a lot of scattering of samples because of how the planet's plates have moved over millions of years? Or is that, are they not actually old enough for that to be in effect? Uh,
1: so it may have been related to um, the, the movement of the plates. I think they're more, they're following the coastline. So before the Jurassic, we've got these kind of almost, they, oh, they almost look like giant salamanders that are inhabiting these coastal areas, and then they go extinct. And then, and again, we're not quite sure because we don't really have any transitional fossils, these Thalatisuchians, the Metrorhynchids, and the Teleosaurus, they immediately go into these areas, and they just dominate those coastlines. So they got really well adapted really, really quickly for inhabiting these particular areas, and with that, they didn't really have much competition during that time, and they just whoop, they just immediately went throughout the coastline.
0: So the best adapted just could breed and have lots of offspring. Yeah,
1: yeah, and there's there's a ton of them too. So they got they got adapted really really well, like I said before, but they also got really really big, really really quickly too. Already. During kind of, not the start, but the start, start of teleosaurid evolution, we've got some that are five meters in length, already getting quite big. So that, that's pretty cool that they were able to do that.
0: How big or small do crocodile actually get?
1: So they can get quite tiny, a meter long, you know, maybe less than a meter. And then some of the ones that I work on, they get over seven meters. A skull that's like a meter and a half long. Um, I mean, the biggest crocodile or crocodilomorph that we have right now is Sarcosuchus. And that's, you know, estimated to be 11 or 12. So that's, he's a pretty big boy.
0: (laughs) Wow. And does size make any difference to extinction? Are the bigger ones more likely to be extinct? Yeah.
1: So in modern crocodiles, we kind of have this body size hierarchy. Um, Things that are bigger, they generally adapt better to their surroundings. So they generally eat a lot more variety of different things. They're generally kind of able to bully their way into other niches as well. Uh, they're able to move long distances. And we're kind of seeing that same pattern a little bit with the teleosauroids, the more generalist ones. So they're they're able to eat different things and and they're able to move a little bit better, let's say, quote unquote, they're getting bigger. Whereas the more specialized ones, They continue to stay, you know, I mean, three, three meters is still pretty big, but they, they can, they continue to be a little bit smaller and a little bit kind of more, you know, I'm going to stay out of the way kind of thing. There's not as many of me. So I'm, I'm just going to kind of chill out in the background, whereas the big bosses are up in the front. Right.
0: Yeah. You don't want to fight with the big crocodile. Is there any evidence showing that crocodile species fought each other or I guess still fight each other?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, we don't have any fossil evidence of, of them fighting or or anything like that. Um, I mean, there's there's one specimen uh, of Lemisuchus at the Natural History Museum in London. So it's one of the, the bigger ones uh, with kind of the turtle, the big round turtle crushing teeth that I mentioned before. So that one's got two teeth kind of embedded in its skull, uh, close to where its nose is. And the bone is kind of regrown around it. So that kind of suggests that this thing was fighting with something got bitten in the, in the, face and survived that at least for a little while. Now, is there anything along the coast that is five meters long, over five meters long that would have picked a fight with this guy? Probably not except for maybe another Lemisuchus. So maybe another crocodile. And we see this in, in modern crocodiles too. They fight over territory. Or, or they fight over mates or something like that. So maybe we can say we had two uh, of the same species fighting each other, maybe. Um, I would love to scan that skull and see what the teeth actually are, but unfortunately it is a meter and a half, and I don't know <laughs> where we could actually scan that. So that, that gives us a small kind of little taste of behavior, I guess, of these animals. But as far as species on, on different species interactions, there's not I haven't seen any fossil evidence personally about for for that
0: when you do scan samples for information what does that actually mean and I guess how does
1: it work so I didn't really do much scanning during my PhD I didn't do any scanning during my PhD Uh, one of my colleagues in Edinburgh she's she's doing some some scanning and looking at the inner ears of these crocodiles but basically you get a specimen you put it in a scanner you leave it kind of overnight or a few hours depending on the size and it gives you a bunch of different kind of uh, x-ray almost slices and then you can kind of fill in or color in these different areas of the slices and it gives you a 3d model so that's a very generalized um explanation about what ct scanning kind of does it helps you create a 3d model of if you want the inner ear or if you want the entire skull or if you want the jaw if you or if you just want the teeth
0: Are there any other sort of features besides teeth that are really interesting to look at? So I
1: look at, um, I guess, the length of the snout. Um, You can have a really, really long, skinny snout. You can have a kind of an intermediate form, or you can have a shorter, uh, kind of a more robust snout. And that's really important in suggesting uh, what species might have uh, ate. Um, You also look at the orbits. Because some of these guys have telescopic orbits, so kind of the protruding orbits, almost like bug eyes.
0: orbital orbitals just the name for all of the different bones around so, the eyes?
1: Yeah, so the bones around the eyes, yeah. Um, so that tells you a little bit where they might have been living as well. It seems like telescopic orbits are more kind of fresh watery as composed to other ones. So that, that's kind of interesting. Um, another thing is looking at the pelvis, so it's kind of looking at the hip. Um, so for some of them, they're very, the bones are kind of, they're very shortened. They're very robust. They're, they're very chunky looking and that could suggest, okay, maybe this animal is either, you know, on, on land a little bit more, or maybe it's in a higher energy environment because it it needs to be, it's sturdy. It needs to be kind of anchored. Whereas other ones, it's more elongated. So long, it's more gracile, skinnier, kind of slightly more fragile looking, well, maybe this guy's just kind of swimming around and minding its own business in in a calmer setting. So that's another thing you can look at is, is how robust the, the post-crania is as well, not, not just the skull.
0: Yeah. Is there ever an opportunity to get any genetic sort of experiments going on Ooh. or is that not possible?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, with these guys, you can't get any genetic material, Jurassic material. Old, yeah, you're yeah, way too old. I mean, that would be... Incredible, that would be a miracle. But I, I don't think we're ever going to get Teleosaur DNA, unfortunately.
0: So no you are going to be in Jurassic. I'm Park. I'm sorry, maybe.
1: Jurassic Park, but you're you're no help to me right now <laughs> with my research. <laughs> um, so I just look at you know different features in in the entire skeleton,
0: like a really advanced game of spot the difference. Then.
1: Yes, kind yeah, kind of. So so what we do with with our phylogenies is we look at different features in the skull, in the lower jaw and in everything else. Um, And then we kind of code these features. For example, you can look at the shape of the snout. That could be your, your feature that you're looking at. So it could be round, it could be square, or it could be triangular, a very general example. And then you could say, okay, the round one I'm gonna code as zero. That's the starting point. And then the, the, tri, uh, the rectangular one, I'm going to code that as one, because that's, that's the next point. And then the triangular one, I'm going to code as two, because that, that's the final point. So every species, you would look at that character and say, okay, this one has got a round nose, so I, I put it at a zero. This one's got a triangular nose, so I'm going to put it as a two. And then you have this massive kind of data set of all these numbers, For all these different characters and then what the the program does is you put that into the program that will spit out uh, your evolutionary tree so what the program does is it looks through all these numbers and it gives you a best guess of what is related to what based on the combination of these numbers and then it gives you your your nice tree your nice picture of your tree and you're like oh this makes sense or this is absolute rubbish and It can be absolute rubbish if you've got a lot of question marks. For example, if if you've got a specimen and it doesn't have the nose, for the nose example I said well I don't know what it is so I have to put a question mark. Or if this specimen it's complete but it doesn't have a nose, it never had a nose, I would put it as a little dashed line. So things like that, a lot of uncertainty can, can make your tree very kind of convoluted and, and very question mark e.
0: So it's hard to study the ones where you don't have lots of different samples. Yeah.
1: So as long as you've got a really, really good specimen. So for example, there's this specimen on display at the museum in Paris. It's the, currently the only specimen we have of the species, but the skull is beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. You can get so much information for that. So. That's an instance where, okay, we only have one specimen, but it's a really, really good one. So I can get a lot of information from this. Whereas, you know, sometimes you get multiple specimens, but they might be all fragmentary. And it's like, well, half of my characters are going to be question marks because I don't have anything from this this pile. Right? So it it really depends.
0: Yeah. And what would happen if you had a sample of a crocodile morph that was just kind of weird compared to... Or the ones of the time? yeah that,
1: that's always a that's always a, a really good question because it's like this one is just so weird what do I do with it um, so for me I, I I score it so I give it all the numbers I put it in the data set and you know run it as if it were you know an actual species then what I do is I take it out I run it again and see if that changes anything so I always kind of I always kind of dip and dab with, with these different species that either are a lot of question marks or are really, really weird and you're looking at these features and you're like this has, this does not work right, the, the, how is this possible?
0: So when you're unsure you just need to wait for more evidence then?
1: Yeah, yeah, you have to kind of be okay, 100% certain that it is valid you know, I'm not, I'm not going to put in an indeterminate species that I can score 10 out of 500 characters
0: Yeah so we talked a lot about what you did during your Ph.D., but since you've graduated, have you had the chance to do any other research projects or look into what you might do next?
1: Yeah, so I just finished the Ph.D. in December. So so not a lot of time since then. Yeah, I'm still a baby in the doctor department. Um,
0: yeah not easy to do work during a lockdown
1: yeah unfortunate because there were some other museums i would really have liked to have gone to you know just to add more to my phylogeny my my data set but i can't do that now um so what i'm doing mainly right now is you know fixing up this this big uh, phylogeny paper that i can't really talk very much about uh because we got some reviews back and it's ready to go back into resubmission so fixing up a little bit of that um, and I'm also working on a, a couple of redescriptions of some teleosaurid specimens, as well as this, this kind of feeding, more statistical feeding ecology um, thing that, w- that we're working on. We're looking at uh, teeth and, and other things like that. So that'll be more, a bit more stats heavy. Um, but I'm really quite excited about that one. So as soon as this paper is resubmitted, then I can start focusing on that one, which will be a nice little paper, I think.
0: And do you have any ideas of what you might want to start looking into and researching next?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would like to continue to work on these teleosauroids or just the thalatosuchians in general, um, because I've worked on them for so long. You know, I worked on them for my master's degree, and now I've done them for my PhD. And, you know, this phylogeny, no one's ever attempted it before. So it's going to be a foundational work for these animals. And I'd really like to continue working on them because like I said we're just scratching the surface of what we know about them and it'd be really really cool to look into things like you know ontogeny or a little bit more ecology or start going out and finding some fossils and we can do some dispersal tests as well like that would be really really cool so hopefully I will continue working on these guys Um, I'm not opposed to working on other crocodiles because I think just, just all of them are so unique and different in their own way and a lot of the crocodilomorph tree still needs phylogenetic work and ecological work yeah it still needs a lot of filling exactly in. or just you know the broader uh, message about crocodilomorph evolution that would be something really really neat to see what's what's going on throughout the entire history of these animals you know Whether it be ecology or distribution or you know other other things like that body size things like that that would be really, really neat to look at.
0: Yeah. For anyone who is listening, who doesn't necessarily want to pursue a PhD, are there any books or places to visit that you'd recommend to learn a bit more about this?
1: Yeah. So online, mm, I mean, if you're feeling brave, you could go into Google Scholar and just type in Crocodile Morpha and see what comes up. If you're really into kind of the heavy duty, almost taxonomy, morphological um, papers, somebody could do that. Um, As for museums, there's not a lot in Canada, so please don't go to, you know, no museum, croc stuff in Canada, not a lot of croc stuff in Canada, but the museums you would really want to check out are the Natural History Museum in London. The Natural History Museum in um, Paris has some really neat specimens and also very historic specimens. So if you're into history and paleontology, just that museum is, is amazing. Um, and also, I quite liked the museum in Vienna, as well. It's got some really nice teleosauroids up on the wall that are that are really quite big and kind of give you a scope of how how big they are.
0: Good to see the whole thing in real
1: exactly, life. Exactly, exactly. Um, so that that's quite a good museum uh, as well. I mean, I've been to so many. Uh, Oxford, the Oxford Museum, uh, the Natural History Museum at the in Oxford is also. Amazing for teleosaurid specimens. They have one whole cabinet designated to these guys. So that was that's pretty cool
0: Why aren't there many crocodiles or crocodilomorphs in Canada then?
1: So there's you know, there's a few of them in the museums um, I just I don't think we have the rocks here where the crocodiles were living. So we've got a lot of terrestrial uh, Deposits, so we get a ton of dinosaurs, which is great but for semi-marine coastal deposits, I don't really know if we have a lot of those. And that's kind of generally where they were living. The majority of them were living in the Cretaceous.
0: So visit it Canada for dinosaurs, but don't bother for crocodiles? Yeah,
1: yeah. Canada for dinosaurs, 100%. But crocodiles, maybe not so much. <laughs>
0: yeah. So as my final question... What's kind of the one big misconception, if there are any, about fossil crocs?
1: I, I guess it, one of the things we talked about earlier is that modern crocodiles, you know, the same as fossil crocodiles. And no, you're not. They, they, they have changed over time. And that's one of the kind of the big myth busters that even through my talks or, or you know, just talking to the public or anything like that, that they just assume that crocodiles are living fossils. And it was like, actually, no. They're much, 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 much more diverse than anybody gives them credit for. That's that's mainly kind of the big one. Also, that crocodiles are not dinosaurs. That's that's another one I get as well. And it's like, they're both reptiles, yes, but they're two completely different groups of reptiles.
0: I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode, and there's plenty more online right now. I'd like to thank Dr. Michaela Johnson again for being our guest today and if you want to hear more from scientists we'll be posting a new episode every week on a Tuesday. You can subscribe to the SciFeed Podcast using your preferred podcast platform and also follow us online by searching for SciFeed Podcast. Anyone who's really interested in paleontology just go straight to episode 1 where Natalia Jagelschka will be talking about pterosaurs.